Well, good morning. So good to see you. Happy New Year. Well, once again, to everyone here in the auditorium, to those in the venue, and all those watching online at carneyefree.com. My name is Adrian, and uh, yeah, it's great to see you. If you're a newcomer here today, we extend a special welcome to you. Thanks for choosing to join us here as we start this new year and as we break into to this new series, God's Name. As we uh, jump into it, well, let me begin by asking you this question. Uh, what is God like in your mind? What is God like? You know, it seems to me that the many of us would say we know just what God is like, and we say we know God's name, and it seems to me that sometimes what we can do if we're not careful is we recognize God creates us in his image, and then if we're not careful, we like to create God in our image. Anybody? As it's been said, we like to return that favor. He creates men and women in his image, and men and women across the centuries have been pretty good at recreating him in their own image. And inevitably, when we do that, what happens is we create a God in our mind who likes the things that we like and hates the things that we hate, likes the people that we like and hates the people that we hate, and thinks like us and votes like us and on and on, but we still don't actually know what God is like. We just have a figment of our imagination. So what is God really like? Not creating him in our image, but as he is revealed for us, in the scriptures. It seems to me even in Christian circles, if we were to invite genuine Christ followers to explain in a paragraph or so, what is God like? I think sometimes we'd be hard pressed to do so. When we ask this question, what is someone like, what are we asking? We're asking for their personality, we're asking for their character, for the things that make them tick. Say, for example, you were to ask me, what, what is your wife Susie like? And I tell you, she's like uh, five feet, one inch, uh, maybe one and a half inches. She has black hair and these golden brown eyes. And she's from Oregon and Indian heritage, and she's a mother of two boys. That's what Susie's like. Like, does that answer it for you? No, it doesn't answer it for you. It gives you some true information about her. All of that is true information about her, but it doesn't answer the question you're asking. The question you're asking is, what's she like? What makes her tick? What makes her cry? What makes her laugh? What is she passionate about? And so also, I think we do this with God sometimes. We settle for information about God, such as, okay, God is all-powerful, and God knows everything that, that will be and everything that could be. He's all-knowing. He is always and everywhere present. We settle for this information about God without actually knowing what he's like, what he's passionate about, what his character is, what makes him tick? What would make him mourn? What is God actually like? Now fortunately though, there's a passage for us in scripture where we find a very personal description of who God is. 
And it's listed out the first time in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, chapter 34. And then this is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages that we find again and again throughout Scripture. We're going to look at it over the course of these next several weeks. It's a vital, seminal passage in Scripture in which it turns out, as we study this passage, God is better than we could have imagined. He's like a breath of fresh air. And we're going to experience that together as we unpack this passage in Exodus 34 as he succinctly states for us what is his heart What's he like? Now, I want, to turn, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus now. And Exodus is the second book in your Bible. It goes from Genesis to Exodus. I hope you bring your Bible with you to church on Sunday morning. Or if you use the church app, that's fine too. But we're going to be in Exodus 34 for most of these next several weeks. And then looking at a number of other passages as well. You'll find it along the way on the screen. But this is a passage that we're going to dig into so intensely that it's really going to help you to bring your Bible and to kind of mark it up over these next uh, several weeks. Today we're going to be mostly in Exodus 33, starting off in Exodus 3, then 33, and then we'll get into Exodus 34, Judges just a bit. But in this wonderful passage, well, we learn what is God really like. Now the book of Exodus, yeah, you might know, describes how God rescued his people, the Hebrews, from their slavery in Egypt. They're not yet called Israelites. They're Hebrew people, a Hebrew ethnicity, in slavery in Egypt, and they've been there for a long time. It's a story in which we learn about how God rescues his people. And the backstory starts in Exodus chapter 3 as God introduces himself to a guy named Moses, and he tells Moses that he's going to lead his people out of slavery. And here's how it begins in chapter 3. The Lord said... And again, as we're trying to get a, an understanding of what God is like, this passage is significant as well. It's part of the backstory. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned. I am concerned by what I'm seeing, I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Which is like saying a land of paradise, okay? That's the ancient Near East way of saying it. Would you just notice the verbs in those verses that I just read? These verbs speak to us about God's character. Okay, they're emotion words. I have indeed seen the misery of my people Israel. I've heard their cry. I'm familiar with their suffering. I'm coming down to rescue them. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to bring them out of this Egyptian slavery and bring them into a beautiful and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. And he tells Moses... As the story unpacks, he tells Moses, and guess what, young man, I'm going to use you. And Moses says, "Eh, I'm not a young man anymore, and I'm not your guy. 
Okay, like I know I was raised as a prince in Egypt and I was raised in Pharaoh's household, so perhaps that's why you want to use me. But it's been like 40 years since I've lived over there. I've been tending to my sheep and goats for the last 40 years with my wife Zipporah. And uh, that life is not my life anymore. And beyond that, I get stuck on my words. I'm a stutterer. I'm slow of tongue. I am not your guy, dear God. Go find someone else. But I'm not sure if you've heard, it's just not too wise to argue with God. Like it never goes well for you. If you argue with God, there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And you know which one you're going to be. And so Moses loses this argument and God persuades him. And eventually Moses goes back and you know the story. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Let my people go. And then God brings miracle after miracle after miracle, ultimately culminating with the parting of the Red Sea in which the people called the Hebrews, cross through this dry Red Sea and Pharaoh and his armies get toppled down by it and God emancipates his people from slavery in Egypt. And as they're moving now toward the promised land, Moses is called up to the mountain, called up to Mount Sinai to go meet with God, to enjoy his presence and to receive these 10 commandments from God. And so he goes up to the other mountain, and you probably remember this story. As he goes up the mountain meeting with God, God tells him to chisel out two tablets. He goes up there, he meets with God, he gets the Ten Commandments on these two tablets, he comes down the the mountain, and then what happens? To his utter horror, the Hebrews have gathered, and they've taken off their jewelry, taken off their necklaces and their rings, And they've decided during the 40 days that Moses is up on the mountain that God is no longer faithful. And they decide to make up an idol to bow down and worship, one that would be similar to the idols that they had in Egypt. It's a golden cow. They had golden animals in Egypt that they would worship, so let's try that too. Now, in one sense, well, whenever I read this story, my heart just grieves, and I almost feel embarrassed for them. Like, God's just done all of these miracles for you, and you've been in slavery all this time, and you can't wait for 40 days. But then in another sense, it's like, I can be rebellious. Anybody else? I think there's a rebellious streak in you and me and all of us. There's a rebellious streak in us. And I had toddlers and I couldn't leave them alone in the room for 40 minutes without that room becoming terrorized. And so this reminds me to have a little bit of sympathy for the Hebrews as they're doing what seems unfathomable. Anyway, Moses is crestfallen by all this. He comes down the mountain And literally, he's so angry. What does he do? He breaks the tablets. He gets these two two tablets for the Ten Commandments. He just, he breaks them. And God is crestfallen as well. In fact, God is so upset that he says to Moses, these people are so stiff-necked, they are so stubborn, that I've decided I am not going to go with them. That's what he tells Moses. They can go off on their own. You take them, Moses. 
I'll send you with an angel, but I'm not going with them. And, and, and Moses, do you know what he does? He falls to his knees. He hits the ground. And he intercedes for his people. And he begs God, please God, we need you, we need your presence. If we don't have you, we don't have what it takes. And Moses called a friend of God. In fact, the scriptures say that he spoke clearly with the Lord face to face. He's a friend of God. And so out of that friendship, he begs God. Look now at Exodus 33, starting at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, God, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Okay, you say you're not going to go with me, Who are you going to send with me? You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Now, this is truly amazing. Moses already knows God. He already has a personal relationship with God. He's been called a friend of God, and yet he wants more, doesn't he? He says, teach me your ways that I may know you, O God. He wants more intimacy with God. I want to just stop and ask you, though, this question. Is that your heart's desire? Like, do you actually hunger to know more of God? Is this what you are most passionate about? If other people were to ask you to speak authentically about what you are most passionate about, what would come from your mouth? Or if other people were to observe your life for a while and notice what you are most passionate about, what would they notice? Would they notice the sports? Would they notice the hobbies? Would they notice the things? Would they notice certain relationships? What would they notice that you are most passionate about? I really hope that when I'm dead, people will say this of me, he was about the kingdom of God. And he loved God most. And he loved other people because he loved God most, especially his family. That's what I hope people will say of me. Now I'm not positive that's what people will say with me, say of me, I need to worship God more. I need my life to be more devoted to him. But that's what I want people to say of me well when I'm gone. That's what I hope my kids will notice of me well when I'm gone. He loved God most. This is what Moses is most passionate about. He's most passionate about God. So much so that he's frightened about the prospect of moving forward into the promised land without God's presence. And so in all of this uncertainty, he stops and he asks God, are you really done with us? Like I know that we've blown it. The people have been down there at the bottom of the mountain committing idolatry. It's unthinkable what they've done, but are you really done with us? So he presses in and he begs God, please don't quit on us. Verse 14, the Lord replies, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So Moses, maybe he just breathes here, he exhales, he says, okay, thank you. 
But I, I kind of had a scary moment there. I wasn't positive that you would go with us. And so I'm just going to go ahead and ask again, God. Verse 15. Then Moses said to him, Like, if your presence does not go with us, then just don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? Like, God, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Can you hear Moses' heart there? Can you sense his passion, his concern? That if we don't have God with us, we don't have much. See, he understands that what would distinguish him and the Hebrew people from the other nations of the earth is the presence of God. He remembers that God promised to take this man Abram and turn him into Abraham, and Abraham would become a father of many nations, and Abraham was called to be blessed by God in order to be a blessing to other people. This is the reason that God created the Israelite people, that they would be a blessing to the other nations, that they would be a centripetal force, which one is it, centrifugal? A magnetic force bringing people in. Okay, I was not a physicist. Uh, They'd be a magnetic force bringing people in, a light to, to the other nations. Or as Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on the hill. You are to be the pleasing aroma of God. And if you don't go with us, we don't have what it takes to be a light to their nations. Without you, we're not much. He gets that. Here's the point. Here's the point in it all. The presence of God's spirit is what distinguishes the follower of Christ. Mm. Say that with me. Let's say it all together, including the venue. Please join me. The presence of God's spirit is what distinguishes the follower of Christ. How does someone know that you are a Christ follower? Okay, Jesus says there's three ways that folks would know that we are followers of Christ. And I hope you memorize these. If you're taking notes, this would be a good time to take notes. There's three ways that Jesus says people would know that you are followers of Christ. One, by your magnanimous love. That other people would see you and they say, wow, she is just so incredibly loving. He loves those who love him. He loves those who do not love him. He is so magnanimous in his love. Okay, that'd be number one. Number two is unity in diversity. Wow, those Christians, those Christ followers, they're different. Like they have different economic backgrounds. They came from different states and different nations. They have all different kinds of experiences. They sin in different ways. They have all different kinds of issues, but they have unity on the main things. They're unified in the midst of their diversity. They are one as Jesus and the Father are one. That's number two. Number three is this. You bear much fruit. Okay, by your fruit, they will know that you are their disciple, that you are Christ's disciple. Okay, that's what Jesus says. Okay, so you are bearing fruit of obedience to God that results in increased 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, you don't have it all the time, you don't have it all at once, but you are bearing more fruit because you have the presence of the Spirit of God in you. This is how people would know that you are genuine Christ followers. Not because you're financially successful, not because you have a really good family, not because you're really nice with your words. Lots of people are nice with their words. Lots of people have nice families. Lots of people are financially successful. Those are not the things that distinguish you from the other nations of the earth. It's unity amidst diversity, it's love, and it's fruit. And how do you have those? By the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God in you. I hope you know yourself well enough to know that you will not have those things on your own. I mean, maybe for a little while you will. I, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps as well as anybody. And so I can show those things off for about a week. But they do not last in me, and I hope you know this about yourself, they won't last in you without the genuine presence of the Holy Spirit which is found as we just choose to be still and say, God, I need you, I trust in you. Day in and day out, I trust in you. Do not send me forth into Carney without your presence, O oh God. Well, don't miss what happens here. Here's how God responds to that request. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this is so good. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you. And I know you by name. Mm. So like we just finished 100 days of prayer. Here's an answer prayer. Okay, like you, you, you really want to understand how God operates, how he interacts well with his people. Okay, God says to Moses, I'm not going with you. I'm so sick of your stiff-necked people. I'm not going with you. And what does Moses do? He prays. He falls to his knees. He begs. He lays prostrate before God. He begs, and God hears Moses. And then God interacts back with Moses, and what does Moses do? Moses hears God. And there's this interaction in which God is somehow, mysteriously, to some degree, moved. He's moved by Moses requests for his presence and God says I'll go with you now even there I want you to know Moses is still not done he's very bold look at verse 18 he goes on Moses says now God if I can be so bold now please show me your glory okay so my man's got two requests number one is God show us your presence please give us your presence we don't have what it takes if you don't go with us and number two God please show me your glory Again, he wants to know God more deeply. He's expressing that desire. He's expressing the longing of his heart to know God more intimately. And he says, God, I want to know your glory. The word glory in Hebrew is kabod. Somebody tell your neighbor, kabod. Kabod. Tell your neighbor, kabod. Don't you like that word? Okay, you don't like it as much as me. Kabod. Kabod means uh, glory. It also means heaviness. Or it means um, fullness. 
So literally, what Moses is asking from God is, God, would you manifest your fullness to me? Can I please see your fullness? I want to know more of who you are. I long to know the fullness of who you are, O oh God. He's saying more than answers, more than success, more than an easy life, what I want is God. What I want is an encounter with God that is deeper than I've ever experienced before. Now listen to how God answers Moses' request. Watch this. This is so dope. Verse 19. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness, circle goodness in your Bible, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, circle proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he says, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, you cannot handle all my kabod. But I will do something much more palatable for you, and yet no less impactful for you. And this is what I'll do. I will proclaim my name to you, and I will pass my goodness in front of you. I will show you my goodness, and I will proclaim my name to you, and it's gonna be beautiful. Do you realize that God has a name? Like, he's not just a title. It's not just Lord or Savior or Master or King or God. All of those are titles and all of those are true of God, but he also has a personal name which he chooses to reveal to us which speaks to his character. And friends, in the ancient Near East culture in which this was written, names were a really big deal. Occasionally I'll ask people today, what does your name mean? And a lot of times they have no story at all about their name, but sometimes they do have a story about their name. My mom gave me this name because it reflected her dad, something like that. Or I was given this name because this was a blessing that my parents gave to me. They were praying this for me that I would become this kind of person that this name means. Okay, that was a that was a truism that was always a reality about names in the ancient Near East culture. Names were a big deal. They were to reflect someone's character. They were a blessing as to what someone was to become. For example, in Genesis chapter 17, now there's this man named Abram, and he's called out, and Abram gets a new name. It is Abraham. And what does Abraham mean? It means father of many nations. Okay, you were Abram, I'm making you Abraham because you are going to be a father of many nations. And of course, that's just what he became. So when God says, I'm going to proclaim my name, this is a really big deal. And that's exactly what he's going to do here in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. He proclaims his name and he reveals who he is to us. And so what I want to tell you at the beginning of this series is when you are distraught, when you're beat up by life, when you're questioning the character of God, when you're starting to doubt whether God hears you or cares about you, when you're starting to question, does God know what I'm going through? When you're beat down by the suffering of life, I want you to come back to this passage on a regular basis. 
This is a seminal passage that we would come back to that answers those questions, those doubts, those sufferings, those wonderings about the character of God. And this is what God is doing for Moses. He's saying, this is who I am. You come back to this. And if you know your Hebrew scriptures, this passage which I'm about to read, you know that the Hebrew authors came back to this passage again and again. They wrote it down again and again because this is God's name. And it speaks to us what God is like. So finally, all of that said, these two verses. That was quite an introduction, wasn't it? (laughs) Okay, just give me another 45 minutes or so. (laughs) I got one man that said all right. (laughs) Okay, uh, that's more of an introduction for the whole series, okay? Okay. Um, all of that leads to where we're going for the next eight weeks. And we're going to read now these two key verses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. But let me start here, Exodus 34, verse 1. And just imagine with me that you are there with Moses. Okay? Just picture yourself there on Mount Sinai. You're there with Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. (laughs) God's got a sense of humor. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, and he proclaimed his name. Here it comes. The Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming. Here it is. The Lord. The Lord. The compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining his love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed to the ground at once, and he worshiped. Now, most English translations translate this simply, the Lord, the Lord. Okay? I'm going to proclaim my name, and then it says, the Lord, the Lord. That's kind of unfortunate, because the Lord is a title. The Hebrew words here, in the original Hebrew, as it was written some 3,500 years ago, were four consonants. Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. It literally says this. Yahweh, Yahweh. I am, I am. That's what Yahweh means. I am, I am. It doesn't say the Lord, the Lord. It says Yahweh, Yahweh. The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining his love to thousands. Yet forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, 
Don't get too freaked out about that last line, okay? We will come back to that. We'll spend a lot of time on that in a few weeks. And I want you to know, even in that, there are these beautiful notes of mercy. And there's a whole lot more than meets the eye in that final line, okay? There's plenty of mercy in that final line. We'll come back to it in a few weeks. Please don't get freaked out based on that. This isn't some kind of divine form of child abuse where children are guilty for what their parents did. It's not that at all. Okay, we, we will come back to that one. But for now, these two verses reveal to us God's character and his name. They reveal to us this. God has a personal name and God has a personal character and he chooses to make those known to us. God has a personal name and a personal character. And here in Exodus 34 and many other times across the Hebrew scriptures, he reveals this personal name and this personal character to to us. And so this becomes for God's people like a bedrock of God's character. That again, we wonder what is God's character like and this would be a bedrock that we would come back to again and again should we ever wonder, can I trust in God. And so for eight weeks, we're going to ask, what does Yahweh mean? What does it mean that God is compassionate? What does it mean that God is gracious? What does it mean that God is loving? What does it mean that God is slow to anger? What does it mean that God is just? We're going to ask those kinds of questions over the course of these next eight weeks. And what I hope we will do is begin to repair some of the broken images of God that many of us have in our minds. That's my hope. That is my prayer. That we begin to repair some of the broken and fractured and ugly images that some of us have about God. Let me close with this question. What is your portrait of God? What comes to your mind as you think about God? What is he like? Friends, I'm telling you, however you answer that question is the most important thing about you. That, that, that may sound like an overstatement, but it's not. How you answer this question, what is God like, is the most important thing about you. Because what you think of when you think of God will determine your prayer life, your desire to tell others about God. It will determine the way you love other people. It will determine your worship. And worship determines destination. Worship determines destination. And so if you have a false portrait of God in your mind, you're going to be moving in the wrong direction. Worship determines your direction. Your direction determines your destination. And so again, throughout this series, what we want to do is begin to ask God to repair some of the false images, some of the false ideas that we have about him as we simply ask the question, what is our God like? 
perhaps it's good for us to begin with the two requests that Moses had. And we'll pray this way as we close. God, would you please give us your presence? And God, would you please show me a little more of your glory? So Father, we come to you now. You are the great I am. Your name is Yahweh. (laughs) The Holy One. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And yet at the same time, you are just. Thank you, God, for who you are. We're asking together as a church family as we begin this series that we might know you a little bit better. We're praying in the mighty name of Jesus, Lord, that you will grant us your presence. We don't want to just know about you. We want to know you. We don't want to just learn about the Holy Spirit. We want to have the Holy Spirit in us. So Holy Spirit, please fill us. Anoint us to do your work as we work throughout each week. To remember that you are present with us and without your presence, we don't have what it takes to love as Jesus loved. Without your presence, we don't have what it takes to be unified in our diversity. Without your presence, we don't have what it takes to bear fruit from these branches. Without your presence, we can't go forward. So God, give us your presence. And Father, we're asking as well that you would show us a bit more of your glory. We know we can't handle all of it, but would you show us a little bit more of your glory? Would you grant us a little bit more of an understanding of your goodness, a deeper understanding of your name? And would you begin to repair the portraits we have about God, that they would all conform to Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, in whose name we pray, amen.